Hello everyone and welcome to 35mm Perspective, a podcast where we watch movies and tell you what we thought about them. My name is Jacob Coots, I am your host today, and I am joined by my co-host Grant Vavra. Grant, how are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good, Jacob. Glad to, glad to hear from you. Excited to talk to everybody about some movies. Today we have a show in three parts. We're going to have our trailer section where we talk about movie news and some of the actual trailers that we saw before uh, the movie that we watched this week. We'll have an industry talk section where I believe you are going to break down uh, Metacritic, how those scores are aggregated, what it all kind of means. And then we'll finally be getting into our feature presentation, the movie that we are reviewing this week, which is Spider-Man Far From Home. We'll have a spoiler-free section where we can, you know, anybody can stick around and listen. We're not going to get into spoilers, nothing too deep-divey. And then we'll have a very spoiler-heavy deep-dive section. And at that point, for people that aren't familiar, um, they might want to turn off the podcast and and walk away. Um, but I, <laughs> I had a bit of an, well, not an accident. I did kind of a dumb thing. When I watched, <laughs> when I went to see the movie this week, which is that I just took movie phone at face value when it told me that there was a showing at 5 p.m. And I didn't look into it, to be fair, so maybe it's my fault. Um, but when you look up movie times by zip code, at least on on the mobile site, it just shows all the times. It doesn't specify what they are. So I ended up going and watching this in IMAX, which was fine, although you probably don't need to watch it in IMAX if I'm being straightforward. Um because I ended up there at five and that was the only showing that they had was the IMAX showing and I didn't want to, I was like, well, I'm not going to go home and I don't want to wait here for an hour and a half for the next showing. So I guess I'm doing this. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, watched mine in Dolby Cinema Plus, but I did that on purpose because I get free movies. Well, more or less free through the AMC A-List app. So I don't have to worry about the upcharge for IMAX but in Seattle I'm sure that's pretty painful yeah it wasn't it wasn't great it's a mistake that I'm gonna I'm gonna try not to make anymore movie phone just please in the future that's all I'm asking just separate it into these times are regular showings these times are 3d these times are IMAX I mean feels like it should be straightforward yeah at least (laughs) you didn't get stuck with that 3d showing that would have been yeah that would have been that would have been painful, although some of the some of the stuff in, in a Spider-Man movie I think is actually one of the few movies. I don't generally like 3D, but I think a Spider-Man movie would actually be one of the few that would be kind of fun to see in 3D. And I saw, like, shots specifically designed for 3D throughout the movie. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, you could totally tell that they had that in mind. But before we get too deep into that, Jacob, let's, let's move on into our trailer section where we can talk about some of the things that uh, have been going on this week in movie news. So we'll be right back. Before we get to our industry talk about Metacritic and our further discussion on Far From Home, we're going to open up our trailer segment with a film that's appeared uh, before a lot of different movies, and that's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. This is Quentin Tarantino's latest feature-length film, his uh, first since The Hateful Eight, which was his, his ninth 
eighth or ninth film, depending on how you count them. <laughs> and that film was also shot in 70 millimeters, which is twice as good as our podcast name. Yeah, that's true. They, uh, I've seen this same preview probably a million times. I watch a lot of movies, and I'm not kidding you. I think it's aired before everyone I've seen. Yeah, me too. It aired before uh, when I went and saw Aladdin. It aired before that, which felt a little out of place. So yeah, I think you're right. They're promoting it as hard as they can and anywhere that they can. Anybody that's watching a movie, they're like, you'll be interested in it. It's about how movies are made, kind of, but not really. Yeah, and it's funny because I don't think he needs to promote his films that much. You just say, Quentin Tarantino filmed the thing, and people are going to show up to watch that thing. Yeah, that's true. Also, a, a pretty good cast of four actors of note. You have Margot Robbie, Leonardo DiCaprio, Brad Pitt, and Al Pacino. So definitely a star-studded cast for what this movie is going to be, which is about Hollywood in the late 60s. It's very much the Quentin Tarantino aesthetic. I'm not entirely sure where the story's going to go. Not much has been released, but he said it's going to be the most similar to Pulp Fiction that he's ever done. So I'm I'm interested in that kind of tagline promotion he's said about it. Yeah, it, it definitely looks interesting. Quentin Tarantino has always been very, very hit or miss for me. Um, I think you're absolutely right. Just watching the trailer, it's very obviously, oh, like, yeah, this is a Tarantino movie. Um, but I, I'm definitely into this one. I really want to see this. I've always been interested in the using Hollywood either as a backdrop or delving more deeply into what it's really like, which I don't know how deeply it delves into what it's really like, but, um, you know, sort of focusing on what Hollywood was like and maybe a fantasized version of it in the 60s, like you said, is certainly going to be interesting. And again, the his direction has a very distinct style and it comes across generally pretty well on screen and especially for the the idea of this movie it seems like it's going to be great yeah he's he's not my favorite di- director but he always puts a lot of craftsmanship into his films and that's something i can respect so i'll definitely be watching that when it releases on july 26th just later on this month all right jacob so we're talking about spider-man far from home this week so let's go to the other cinematic universe for a second. Let's go to the uh, the the Deku, I guess is maybe what you call it, the DCCU, <laughs> and uh, talk about this Joker trailer, the uh, Joker movie starring Joaquin Phoenix. I don't know if uh, you got this trailer before Far From Home, but I did, and I, I had heard a lot about this movie. And watching the trailer, I was intrigued because it was a lot darker than any of the Marvel movies could be both like tonally and also visually it's except for a couple of very key instances like hair or red nose or something that they're using um very obviously in the aesthetic the whole the whole um filmography seems to be very dark which to me i think that like speaking not only from a visual perspective but from a tonal perspective i think that's the direction that dc probably needs to go if they want to survive in this Marvel world, as it were, because <laughs> they're way too late to beat Marvel at their own game. Marvel's got, you know, 
by the time that they started their uh, DC Cinematic Universe with Man of Steel in, I think, 2013, which they didn't even follow up with very quickly and not nearly as prolifically as uh, as Marvel has. Um, but at that point, even then, uh, Marvel had, what, five, six years on them? And they had had that time to really hone their craft and nail it down. So there's no way that DC is going to beat them at, you know, the the fun bright colored blockbustery summer uh, superhero movies so I think DC should really take the opportunity to make kind of darker grittier more almost I guess true to life is kind of a weird descriptor for a superhero movie <laughs> but again it's, it's a more grounded almost uh, superhero movie um, they set themselves up with a Dark Knight trilogy again earlier on before even Man of Steel before I think they were even thinking about a cinematic universe and and they've kind of had mixed results ever since. Yeah, mixed. Mixed is being kind there, I think. But yeah, that's that's true. And with the new Batman movie coming out in the next year or so, that'll be what three different Batmans over the course of about a decade. It's getting hard to keep track of. And even talking about the Jokers, you know, you had Heath Ledger and then Jared Leto, and now Queen Phoenix. So. It's kind of hard to identify with one of their characters, whereas you had, for instance, Robert Downey Jr. play Iron Man for all those years, over a decade. Right, exactly. Um, but getting back to the Joker trailer, it it was odd because it simultaneously, to me, didn't give too much about the story away, but it also sort of told the whole thing. Like, if I had seen that without some of the narration over top, it almost could have been that right there that three minutes or whatever it was it was almost a short film if they had ended it a little bit differently it was almost a short film that was just the joker's origin story right there which they always say the trailers give a lot away anymore and i don't know if that's necessarily true with this one but again i felt like that whole story was kind of told there i'm interested to see how they dive more deeply into it um i I don't know if you saw it or if you had any thoughts on it yeah i saw the trailer when it first released a couple months ago and I was initially underwhelmed partly because of all the cast bouncing with the Joker and apparently this one's not a true entree into the extended universe it seems to be a standalone although I think Warner Brothers would probably change their minds if this film does well enough at the box office and with critical reception yeah, and and I think that they would have to, like we talked about before, because they're 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 bleeding effort <laughs> trying to make that DC Cinematic Universe a thing. So if they get something good, they really need to uh, they really need to latch onto it. I think. Um, but we'll see how it ends up going. That movie premieres October fourth of this year. So let's. Uh, I mean, I I really like DC, so I'm kind of hoping with bated breath that it's going to do well and maybe be kind of be kind of a revitalization but all right let's let's move away from dc and jump back into the marvel cinematic universe sort of <laughs> well not sort of let's talk about this the this black widow movie that technically has not even been announced yet by marvel studios um i think that they were waiting for the spider-man release time to pass they're probably announcing phase four at san diego comic-con at the end of the month um, more details to come we'll we'll like release details as we get them but it strictly speaking hasn't been announced Although there have been tons of photos released from, um, I believe, places in Norway where they've been filming with uh, Scarlett Johansson and some other cast members. Um, And speaking to that, it appears that it's not 
an origin story. It looks like, based on some of the cast photos, it looks like it takes place somewhere between Civil War and Infinity War. It, you know, details on that are kind of sketchy. Again, there have been no, as far as I'm aware, no official press releases on anything. Just, again, photos that have come out. And it's rumored, similarly, based on photos from inside the production, that Taskmaster is going to be the villain or at least somehow involved. Um, but because it's not an origin story, a lot of people are questioning, like, you know, what is this? Is this a is this a foray out into an even more extended universe? Is this going to somehow loop back into Phase 4? What Or, like, what comes after Phase 4, I guess I should say? And, like, what are they doing there? I don't know if you know anything else that, that I don't know about this, Jacob, or your thoughts on it. You're a big Marvel guy, so... You know, something that Marvel's always done uh, that has been mixed with me, actually not mixed, I, I haven't liked it, is they don't kill off characters or they fake kill characters. And that's where it kind of rubs me the wrong way. And, you know, this is the kind of unique instance where this probably doesn't take place after Endgame. It's almost certain that it doesn't. Right. Um, but you still get to see Black Widow. And so it almost feels like that what happened in Endgame isn't as severe. I, I mean, she won't be in any, like, post-Endgame storylines, as far as I can tell. But yeah. it's still... She's still around in the cinematic universe, has her own film, which I'm excited for uh, in principle, because I think that, you know, she's a character that started out in, almost entirely as a... You know, the sex appeal and has slowly developed and she got a lot of character development by the end of Endgame. Uh, so it, based on what they've hinted, alluded to, I'd love to see if they show what happened in Budapest. They always reference that with Hawkeye and her. Um, well, I mean, I'd be surprised if they don't at least touch on that because... Barring the fact that it's Mark Ruffalo, I believe all of the other main Avengers besides Black Widow and Hawkeye have had films, right? I mean, again, there was a there was an Incredible Hulk movie with Edward Norton instead of um, Mark Ruffalo, which technically is part of the cinematic universe. And I think all the others have had their own films. But I mean, besides like you know Iron Eagle and more minor, I guess, as it were, heroes that have been introduced elsewhere. I think all of the main ones have had their own films, right? Yeah, yeah. If you look at the original Avengers, at yeah. least, um, outside of, of course, like Hawkeye. So, you know, this could be an opportunity for them to, like you said, maybe not like a joint movie. This will be Black Widow's movie. But but again, touch on what happened in Budapest and have Hawkeye in there um, to, to, to play a part, a p- potentially large part. Yeah, I would definitely like the movie to go that direction. I will be excited to see where they go with Phase 4 because I feel like Marvel is going to have a lot to live up to after the sheer response to Endgame from most people who watched it and just the fallout. Um, We'll touch a little bit on, of course, talking about Spider-Man Far From Home, but that is a conclusion to Phase 3, so... They usually like to touch on different themes and, you know, obviously this big bad that the Avengers can fight, uh, you know, so at the end of the month after Comic-Con, we'll definitely be telling you all more about Black Widow and what else they announced. Yep. 
All right, so Jacob, let's get out of this segment. Let's jump into uh, Metacritic, and you can explain to me how those numbers work because it hurts my mind, but you seem to understand it. So we're going to take a break. We will be right back. All right, Jacob, for this week's industry talk, you are going to explain to me Metacritic, what it is, how it works, break it down in like a very clear and concise uh, way. And I'm going to kind of act as the audience here because I don't know much about it and the audience might not know much about it either. Um, So hopefully I can be a conduit for them and I will ask you any questions that they might be screaming at their computers or car stereos or headphones, wherever they might be listening to this. So uh, just take it away, like explain. Yeah, Metacritic is probably the most confusing of all the major review sites. <laughs> <laughs> so hopefully I don't cause even more confusion trying to explain this. I don't think it'd be um, you. It's probably that's probably them and how they <laughs> decide to break things down. Yeah, well, we'll you'll see in about a second. It's definitely their fault. Um, so it was originally started in 2001 by a, a three-person team from a school in California. You may have heard of it, USC. Nothing but really. it was a brother, sister, and a classmate. And it shifted ownership a couple of times. It was moved over to CNET, and then uh, now is owned by CBS, I believe. So a major news company owning this fairly big review aggregator. Uh, website. It reviews more types of media than another large aggregator, Rotten Tomatoes. It also includes video games and uh, music, but of course we're only going to be focusing on uh, film. You'll notice that the scores for Metacritic tend to be a bit lower than other review sites, for instance like Rotten Tomatoes uh, or Cinema Score. And it's partially due to how they weight their reviews. So they obtain reviews, either critics will upload them or or they'll pull them from the web, scrape them from various websites. And for the most part, it's a one-to-one translation. So if it's a a scale out of 10, they'll multiply that score by 10. So if it's a 7.3, for instance, that movie will get a 73 because their score for critics is out of 100. Mm -hmm. And that translates for most of the numeric systems. Um, But when you look at letter grades, it's where things get really messy. So for them, their opinion on letter grades is that the top should be 100 and the bottom should be a zero. So for them, an A or an A plus is 100 and an F is a zero. Ooh. That's not an opinion that most critics share. They feel like an F should be a 50. And their response is usually, get over it. This is how we do things. <laughs> <laughs> I can. I mean, you just think, of, look at these numbers. They don't make a ton of sense. An F plus is an eight. Yes, yeah, so that would be what? A, that would be a point, a 0.8. Somebody rated a movie a 0.8. Yeah, right? if they gave it an F plus. Yeah. Okay. A C a C plus is a fifty-eight, which thank goodness this isn't well, I, I wish school systems were like that, I guess. Yeah, no kidding. Um 
a B is a 75, and then an A minus is a 91. So right after A minus, things start to, after B plus, things just go all, all haywire. And that made, that led some critics to actually move away from either numeric systems or this letter grade system because they didn't want Metacritic to score their review how it how they do. So they started giving these qualitative assessments of movies, just talking about good or bad things. And so Metacritic's response to that is they have their staff read the review and then give their best guess as to what that would be out of 100. Out of 100? Yeah, so they read a review and they're like, that seems like an 80 to me. So they'll give it an 80 and upload that to their website. Well, that sounds like insanity. That sounds like they're stacking the polls. And also, that sounds like their reviewers are deciding how much they liked it. Yeah, the defense of Metacritic is that, you know, their staff watches a lot of movies and reads a lot of reviews. And if the critic doesn't like their score assignment, they can challenge them. But a lot of critics just don't care enough to, you know, go on Metacritic's website and say oh that's actually a 90 yeah no kidding i mean if if their job is to review films for you know tv newspaper magazine whatever you're not you're certainly not going to take the time to check where your review is posted literally everywhere online and then dispute any grade that they said you gave it that would be absurd that takes so much time yeah i mean people don't even like returning things they bought from the store to get their money <laughs> yeah. back <laughs> So I, I, I have mixed feelings about Metacritic. I don't like their website either. The way they describe things is very patronizing, um, in my opinion. They try to be funny, but it just comes off as a little bit elitist. But that's the status they've reached in the review market is they kind of can just say, I don't care. You deal with it. So do they scrape these reviews from everywhere? So obviously I'm, I'm sure major sources like well-known critics and whatnot, but you said that they scrape the internet too. Can they get it from effectively anywhere? Is that how they aggregate all of their scores? So they usually only take their reviews from big sources. Um, reviews that, reviews sources that are respected by the cinematic community is what they say. So New York Times or IGN, so at least it's not some random blog on the internet that ends up on this critic review section, and they do consistently update what's included in their list, and that list is publicly available. So there's a little transparency there, but then the transparency goes away again when you look at their weighting system. So it's not a true average that they obtain from all these sources they have different varying tiers of importance more or less and they don't tell you what's weighted by what or what is in what tier to my knowledge i haven't there was a study that somebody tried to publish in 2013 that said that there were six tiers and that the top tiers were weighted six times heavier than the bottom tiers Uh, but that was that ended up being debunked, at least by Metacritic. Well, yeah, I would assume so. Yeah. If from a statistical perspective, what I did is I think they fit a model that also explained the data. But from what I could gather from you know their response and then 
some other data, it seems like there are fewer tiers than six and that it's a slightly closer gap. I cal hand calculated averages against their meta score, uh, their meta score being what they, that number you see on their website. But yeah, it, it's still not a great process I have. I think they should show you what weight is attached to which review. And if each review is theoretically from a big reputable source, why aren't they all weighted the same is one of my questions to that. Yeah, for sure. They On the user side of things, their score is out of 10. And I think that's mostly because they're less interested in that part of their website. <laughs> um, <laughs> they have probably the most comical instance of review, review bombing I've seen. I like to look at various review sites, Rotten Tomatoes or, you know, random comments on review sites to see what people say and mostly to see what people who hate it say because I love being bothered. <laughs> uh, so, you know, there's this practice of review bombing where, you know, users will go online and just give it a zero or the opposite occurs. They give it a 10 and it's a fake account. Yeah, uh, And it's for people who either created multiple accounts to boost the score or lower the score. And it's usually for an opinion not related to the movie, but due to some cast member or uh, some kind of other uh, grievance they have with it. But Metacritic doesn't really have a clear response system in place to this review bombing. There's not much action taken. And when people do get banned from their website, they're not really told that they are. Can, so can they still access it and appear to post I th reviews? I think their account is just done. I think they closed the account. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's kind of ambiguous from what I've seen. It's it's not excessively common. And it, if you look at old reviews on pretty much any movie, just read the zeros. It will make your day so much better, I promise you. Or worse. Probably depending upon, you know, how you're feeling. Yeah, depending on what they say, because it's it's usually from um, a mindset that's not shared by many people. I'll leave that spoiler free for you. Uh, overall, it's it's a pretty influential website still. Critics and production companies alike still want to make sure that their Metacritic score is high as opposed to low. But for instance, if you look at Spider-Man Homecoming, the prequel to the movie we're talking about today, that got a 73 meta score. This raw average I computed was pretty close. It was around a 74. Uh, so there doesn't suggest a huge difference from the weighting of those reviews. They ranged from 40 to 100, those scores. So very wide representation. And the user average was a 7.6. So usually critics and users are, are moderately close on Metacritic. Um, and that number you see is kind of a average of these reviews that they decided to pull from the internet. But it's not always a great representation because, for instance, a B- is a 67. Yeah. So yeah, that's Metacritic in a nutshell. So now when you go on that website, you'll see a score and you'll say, that might be right. Which is exactly the kind of mindset that you want to have looking at a review on a film review website, right? Yeah, you know, my purchase might be justified, or it might not be. So you have like 10% more information going in. Perfect. 
All right, well, thank you for that explanation, Jacob. So, you know, I think we're going to take a quick break, and then right after that, it's time for us to dive into our future presentation, Spider-Man Far From Home. So don't go anywhere. All right, everybody, this is the moment you've been waiting for. It is time for our feature presentation uh, this week, talking about Spider-Man Far From Home, directed by John Watts, who is reprising his role, I guess, <laughs> as the director of Spider-Man Homecoming, starring Tom Holland as Spider-Man, Zendaya as MJ, Jake Gyllenhaal as Quentin Beck slash Mysterio, Samuel L. Jackson as Nick Fury, Jacob Batalon as Ned, and John Favreau as Happy Hogan, Marissa, and Marissa Torme as Aunt May. Um, so, Jacob, you're much more of a Marvel guy than I am, so I will sort of, like, let you take the lead here. Tell me, like, what were your, spoiler-free, to start with, thoughts about the movie? Yeah, so I thought, uh, obviously this is, um, you know, the sequel to Homecoming, which uh, was, you know, this very personal, you know, neighborhood Spider-Man. They really drove home the neighborhood Spider-Man part. Um, You know, smaller-time villain. uh, About his growth, you know, trying to learn the ropes as Tony was somewhat of his mentor. Uh, and, And then it ended with that Aunt May... You know, oh, that big moment where she finds out he's yeah. Spider-Man. Um, so this takes off right after, not right after that, uh, uh, right after Endgame, more or less. And I thought it was a, overall, it was a very light film after the somewhat dark tone of Endgame. They call it a palette yeah, cleanser. Something is- yeah, something as heavy as Endgame, and then this is, this is the immediate follow-up that we get. Yeah, and it was, you know, it was interesting because it was a comedy, but it it had some dark moments to it too. Um, you know, some uh, not like cinematic, like filming-wise, which is definitely a tactic used, for instance, in the Joker trailer. But in terms of just this uh, more gritty, it gets gritty at some points. So that's how I'll describe it. In general, I thought the actors were all great. They gave great performances. There was some excellent chemistry uh, between MJ and Peter. Uh, The CGI was a little inconsistent, I would say. Some scenes looked very good, and then some other scenes uh, just did not look like it was a Marvel production film. Uh, and, and there were some that certainly looked cartoony. I, I think I know the moments that you're talking about, and I agree. Yeah, and we'll definitely... I'll touch on that in the spoiler section of the review. Um, and I think, as a conclusion to Phase 3, it did somewhat of an okay job. The end credits, I think, are what really pushed the narrative and the universe forward. And so, although it answered some questions from Endgame, I think it created some new questions and and maybe introduced a few inconsistencies as a result. But I can't touch more on that until a couple of minutes from now. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Kind of like you said with the end credits, since we're in the spoiler-free segment right now, if you're listening to this and you haven't seen the film yet, just so you are aware, there are two end credits scene, one mid-credit scene, and then one post-all-credit scene. How Marvel usually tends to do, they've got the really bright and flashy uh, primary credits where it's got all of the main actors and actresses and directors and whatnot, 
and there's a credit or there's a scene right after that and then there's the full credits where it has the names of everybody that worked on the film and following that there's an additional credit scene so if you're going to see it in theaters and you haven't seen it yet or if you've seen it once and just had to leave before the credits were able to finish so you have the awareness there are two post-credit scenes that you might want to stick around for I, i tend to agree with a lot of what you said this movie in particular uh, more so than a lot of the recent Marvel movies, to be totally honest, reminded me how good the casting generally is for mm. the MCU. Um, I, I have always thought that most of the leads and, and even the secondary characters have been cast incredibly, incredibly well, even if they're not exactly as they were in the comics or in the original stories. The way that they play off each other and the way that they play on screen is incredibly good. Like Tom Holland makes a great Spider-Man, especially for some... <laughs> some very awkward high school moments that we've seen both in Homecoming and that reprise that again in Far From Home. Um, Jake Gyllenhaal is a very weird but hilarious guy, and because of that a little bit, I think, fits the role of Mysterio very, very well, or Quentin Beck. It, and by the way, if you haven't seen some of his interviews that he did on the various press tours for this, either with or without Tom Holland, you should absolutely watch them. They're Sometimes they get real bizarre, but but they're a lot of fun. They're they're a real trip, and if you're interested, absolutely just go watch any of his uh, any any of his interviews surrounding this. Um, there were definitely some awkward and cringeworthy moments throughout the entire movie, and I I had a hard time relating to some of that because I'm 25. I'm you know like what is it now? Like six years removed from high school and like you said he he's still a high school student a lot of this kind of revolves around him still being to some degree your friendly neighborhood spider-man because he can't go out anywhere else because he's got to go to you know english in the morning <laughs> so maybe those awkward moments were meant to reflect being a teenager which it, some people i'm sure certainly relate to it was just hard for me uh at this point in my life to relate to not to say that they were necessarily bad and again tom holland and the rest of the cast as a whole to be honest did an incredibly good job at playing out those moments as they would probably happen in real life if if i could say that i guess but again it was <laughs> there were some things that were just a little bit hard to watch on screen it was one of those things where you just kind of wanted to recess into your shirt or whatever and be like oh my god this is so bad what are you doing <laughs> yeah i fully agree it brought back a lot of teenage angst and it's weird because the chemistry was how awkwardly they played off each other, but it was very intentional to try and, like... No, it was. Yeah, so I was I was very impressed at how they did not fall into their own shirts during acting. <laughs> yeah, it, it was very intentional. And again, like, I, I think people misconstrue sometimes when we or other people say, oh, they've got really good chemistry on screen. That doesn't necessarily only mean good like the good moments come across well like they just interact well the way that they go back and forth looks really good and sometimes especially when you're talking about characters that are again high school students in the midst of hormones and trying to figure out oh does does she like me does she not like me do i like her i don't really know and uh, you know a million other things <laughs> that are going on that we'll touch on more in the spoiler section being able to play off each other there in those awkward moments also really lends itself to on-screen chemistry um one other thing that I was reminded of uh, watching this movie was, again, how bright and colorful and, for lack of a better term, exciting Marvel movies 
uh, can be, especially in stark contrast to the Joker trailer like you and I have both touched on. Again, like I said earlier, the Marvel movies are just very bright and colorful if you watch all of them. Like, it's almost like they turned up the saturation on everything when they were uh, in post just a little bit, so everything, like, really pops, uh, where DC doesn't always do that. And again, I think both have their merits if they follow them the way that they should, and I think Marvel should continue with what they're doing. Again, Thor Ragnarok is another one that comes to mind very well for me, where, again, he's effectively... Prison isn't exactly the right term for it but he's a gladiator kind of a a slave for part of the movie and yet it's still there's all these vibrant golds and reds and purples and all of these very vibrant colors that in a lot of other films or a lot of other cinematic universes there certainly wouldn't be and spider-man does a very good job of like continuing that thread here so jacob if you had to rate this movie not if i'm I'm going to ask you to (laughs) rate this movie (laughs) out of 10 what do you got I would say it was a tough movie to score for me. I wavered between scores higher and lower than the one I'm going to give it. I'm going to give it a 7.5 out of 10. What about you? I'm going to give it a 6. I think it was, you're right, it was a palate cleanser. It wasn't a bad movie again. It's a very fun summer blockbustery movie. It, it's a Marvel movie. I mean, like, I don't feel like I really have to say much more than that. It's a Marvel movie. Like, go see it. You're going to have a good time. It's it's certainly not bad. And, like, maybe I'm being a bit too critical with 6. So I'm, I'm going to... Here, let's move it up to a 6.5 at least. Um, I think 6 is slightly too critical. There were some issues um, that, again, we'll dive into more in the uh, spoiler section. Um, I did have some issues with it in terms of the plot and the plot holes it felt a little bit weird as a follow-up to endgame both as though they didn't talk about it enough and at other times it was very very heavy-handed it it struck me as um which again we'll get more into in the spoiler section but i think overall i gotta give it a 6.5 so collectively if we had to combine our scores it sounds like it's a seven which is pretty solid as far as movies go yeah but my weight is twice of yours so it's a 7.3 but that's going to be hidden right and if i ask why you're going to tell me that's just because it is Is yeah you have to cut that in post so nobody knows why (laughs) okay yeah yeah yeah. got it (laughs) all right we are now going to move into our spoiler review uh, of spider-man far from home so if you're listening to this haven't seen the movie yet now is probably a good time to pause, like right now. Go buy a ticket online or yeah, rush to the theater, go see it. Or don't. You don't have to do it right now. We're a podcast. We live in your phone or on the internet somewhere. So go see it at some point and then come back. We'll be here waiting. So um, Ch- go. Now. All right, Jacob. Let's let's deep dive back into it here. I'm going to hand it back to you. Like I said, you're... You're the bigger Marvel guy, so please take over. Hit me with everything that was either right or wrong with this movie. So what better place to start than the beginning? You know, <laughs> right at the end of the last movie again, we had that, you know, big reveal with Aunt May finding out Peter's Spider-Man. And apparently a lot of development happened off screen because, you know, right away <laughs> that these two are working together. They're a tag team. There is no exploration of what that was like, though, uh, which I feel like, 
even if it was a couple of minutes of screen time, I would have liked to see that. Yeah, and it's it's odd to me a little bit that, like you said, there was no exploration of it on screen, and she is immediately on board and immediately like, oh yeah, this is your job, and also you need to do it, and I know you're going to be putting yourself in harm's way, but still, you need to do it. So here, I know that you don't want to be a superhero this week when you're in Europe, but I'm going to pack your suit anyway because you might need to be a hero, and I'm telling you as your aunt, you need to do it. Not, you know, I'm concerned for your safety, and maybe you shouldn't be doing this, and you're like a 16-year-old kid, and what are you doing trying to save the world? You absolutely shouldn't be doing this. Which, to me, seems more like the dynamic I would expect, right? Like, a concerned aunt being like, I'm watching you, you know, you don't have parents. I'm, I'm taking care of you. I don't have a husband anymore, like... What are you doing? I'm not going to allow you to do this. What the hell? Yeah, parents MIA, Uncle Ben super dead, and now I want you to (laughs) intentionally dodge bullets. And even makes the joke by throwing the banana at him and references bullets flying his way. Uh, So so maybe something's wrong with the spider sense, which is one of the small subplots of the movie. But I'm going to pack your suit anyway. Yeah, so that was a little bit strange to me, and also strange. So the beginning of the movie, I was just like, mm, a little bit thrown off guard because of how they handled these lingering questions. You know, all these things from Endgame, the, the blip, they call it in this movie, where you had all these people. Some people, half the planet lived five years, half the planet appeared five years later, the same age as when they left. And, you know, it was it was taken as a joke, really. They mentioned it in the beginning news sequence, you know, that returning joke they had from Homecoming, this awkward type newscast for the school. And it just that didn't sit well with me. Yeah, I'm I'm with you there. It did seem like they I guess they were trying to be serious about it in the context of the universe, but outside as a viewer it did seem a lot like a joke which does seem bizarre because again people disappeared for five years and then appeared back and everything was fine and let's just move on i mean again they do make a joke about it like but even though half the school year was over we still and we had already taken midterms we had to start all over and like they just jump right back in it seems like i mean we see a little bit of it with uh, Aunt May and Peter as Spider-Man at that charity benefit but this whole thing of oh yeah you were gone for five years and now you're back and you're exactly the same age and um, also you're still in high school but do you want to go on this trip to Europe because like that'd be cool <laughs> yeah it was it was very strange and of course with the blip you know every single person we cared about also blipped how convenient right yeah I had literally that exact same thought where I was because, I mean, it, we didn't touch on everyone necessarily, and I was like, oh, look at that, MJ is, isn't older either. How convenient that, yeah, she was also part of the half that, you know, just disappeared so that this love interest secondary storyline can just conveniently happen in this movie. I mean, again, it's one of those things where, like, I guess suspension of disbelief a little bit or whatever, where it's like, I mean, you know, it is a movie, so sure. Yeah, but and... You know, it's technically possible, but, you know, it goes from MJ to Ned to Aunt May to Happy to pretty much uh, Flash. Like, every single person in the class, I think her name is Betsy, but the person that Ned has the fling with, uh, her co-anchor, 
like all the familiar faces and I don't think that's really Spider-Man's fault, like the creator's fault, because they, I don't think anyone wanted to mess with the potential fallout of Endgame. Uh, you know, if if MJ was five years older, or if they had to do like, you know, every other type person, it, it would be a much, much harder movie to make. So I think they just relied on suspension of disbelief and the fact that this is technically possible even though it's exceptionally unlikely it yeah that's true i mean it would have been interesting to me a little bit had mj been a bit older because i can't remember which one because there's a lot of them but i believe that there was one spider-man series where peter was a high school student and mj was the daughter of the police chief who was older than him and there was like a weird like pseudo romantic interest there but it it felt like well that would be a really easy way for them to set up for that if they wanted and then obviously they didn't but mm-hmm. I, I don't know it was that was something that was interesting to me i was like oh maybe they can do something there and then they just avoided it and didn't so you know whatever like you said avoiding the fallout from endgame sure i don't necessarily blame them on that end and i guess like i'll talk about the inconsistencies first. So this is like going to be a negative beginning to the spoiler review. Um, but then it's going to end on a happy note. I think that what they did with Edith, Edith was a little bit bizarre, just entirely. Uh, the fact that Edith was made in the first place, I mean, Tony Stark always was preaching about hero responsibility and, you know, in Civil War, he was about constraints and you know, controls on humans. He even mentioned that in Endgame where he's like, you know, I told you we needed to be held in check. And then he makes this contraption, this AI that can tack into anyone's phone and kill anybody on command. Yeah, plus, I mean, think about the title. What a convenient title that he gave it. Even Dead, I'm the Hero. Wow, how conveniently not heavy-handed at all. Yeah, and how did he know? So, I guess... I can see him making some AI. That's what he always did. So, I mean, before he died, he could have made it, whatever. But how could he have bestowed it to Peter, who came back to life, like, ten minutes before he died? Like, it seems strange. Maybe there was some kind of backup in case Peter never came back. It went to Pepper or something. But it was just, like him making this AI and giving control to a teenager who's dead was just yeah very confusing to me. And, you know, I know it, it needed to happen for the plot, but it just, uh, it was strange. And then of course the ending with Edith where, you know, after Peter had given control to Beck and they made a big point about this needing to be confirmed by him. And then at the very end of the movie, he just takes control again and says, Edith, stop this. But I feel like Beck would have needed to give control back to Peter. Uh, At least based on the rules established in the movie, that's my interpretation of that. Yeah, I mean, there was that. And then there was this very convenient sequencing of words in how Peter said something where had he not said it like that, the one of the post credit scenes probably wouldn't have played out exactly how it did where Edith asks him I can't remember the specific wording but something like would you like me to execute 
all stop protocols or something and he says yes execute them all when he should have just said or i think she just says would you like me to execute all protocols which he says yes execute them all which one very convenient for him that there wasn't a kill protocol currently in place because she could have just been like okay so i'm gonna kill everybody and then i'm gonna stop i'm gonna kill like all your friends that i was told to kill before and then i'm gonna stop but he also could have just said yes instead of yes execute them all i mean granted he obviously didn't know what Mysterio was going to do with that, but still, like, it it was very... It felt weird to me. Yeah, very awkward wording of that. Clearly used to set up the end credit sequence, but, I mean, the... I'll talk about that later, but I I loved the end credits, both both scenes. Yeah, I agree. Those, like, like you said, they were really the only things that... I guess that is one of the big issues that I had, is that those felt like the only things in this whole movie, generally speaking with the exception of a little bit of Edith, that are pushing the MCU anywhere now. Like, besides that, what did this movie do for the MCU, you know what I mean? Yeah, and it's it's not as if every movie has to, like, make this huge progression forward, but for a conclusion to a phase, you would almost expect a little bit more. You know, I, I think they explored some good character growth with Peter, but... It didn't feel like a final chapter in a saga to me. No, no, I agree. And I mean, it almost felt like, even though it's the last movie of Phase 3, it almost felt like they wanted it more to be the first movie of Phase 4, which I think is fine, because again, if you look at the first movie of what is now, I guess, Phase 1, I think I think it was Iron Man. I can't remember. If, yeah, Iron Man came out before The Incredible Hulk, I believe, by like a year. Yeah. Um, and to be fair, that was, you know, like, an origin story and so again it didn't necessarily move the whole cinematic universe forward but also at that time they didn't know that they were going to be doing the cinematic universe at the level that they are now and they very clearly do now so i i think people aren't going to want another 10 years between the next culmination of it all so they're actually going to be on an accelerated timeline so it feels weird and and not great for them to be almost wasting a movie i guess here yeah, I think the purpose for this movie, it it kind of had an awkward positioning with the release date. Yeah. And, you know, when they when they have these, like, they had to tell them what was happening at the end of Endgame just so the actors knew, like, what what was the implications of it all. So yeah. they, that's the hard part when you're constructing this massive cinematic universe is that you're filming movies at the same time, and so... They're not always going to behave. It doesn't always mesh well. Uh, sometimes there's some inconsistencies between movies. And, and and so, you know, this one had the unfortunate position of being released, you know, not too long after Endgame. And it's like right in between phases. So I think they just went with, you know, it's kind of the vibe of the first Spider-Man, which wasn't massively world building but it was is more this development for for peter and i think in that next third movie that's going to be like a massive entry to the mcu instead of just this like standalone with end credits that do things yeah i'm hoping so i mean to to be fair to the movie like I, I don't I it sounded like I was really down on it saying like they wasted a movie. I do think it is refreshing to have this like you have mentioned earlier, this almost more focused on personality 
movie, if that makes sense. Again, it's not... Well, they sort of made it in, so you have to save the world kind of thing, which I think was kind of the point that, again, he's a high school student, and it's like, oh, now you have to save the world when this used to be the adults' problems. And he kind of even touches on that when he asks about, oh, well, can't any of the other Avengers help? Like, why do I have to do it? Like, I'm just a kid. I can't really solve this problem. So I do like the kind of palate cleanser of the Spider-Man movies being like this kid trying to sort of figure out how his powers work and figuring out, oh, how do I take down this relatively speaking local bad guy while also keeping my secret identity secret and avoiding these like bullies at school and trying to figure out which girl I'm into and things like that. It, it is palate cleansing, but it's again, hard. It's, it's gotta be a hard film to make because of how they've set up the whole universe now. You know what I mean? Yeah, I agree. And, and you know, to touch on that a little bit more, uh, I do quite enjoy that personal growth that he did experience where, you know, this whole time it feels like people were just pushing him to to be this hero and he wasn't sure if that's what he wanted. You know, he had uh, Nick Fury, well, pseudo Nick Fury and (laughs) (laughs) and May and, you know, Mysterio was touch and go, you know, he had his own scheme that Mm -hmm. had to play out. Um, and really he's, he's just like, I just want to be a kid. Like, I don't, it's a, like, I don't want to have this pressure. And so I feel like they handled that, be- that battle within him where he wants to be the good guy, but he just wants to be normal too. Like, I feel like that was handled pretty well. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And, and not exactly Well, here, let's just, I guess, kind of move away from that to another one of my... It's not a gripe, necessarily. It was just a weird thing where this felt like two movies in one to me. Because I went in and I'm like, okay, Mysterio's a bad guy in the MCU, usually. So, I mean, not usually, like, classically and pretty much everything else. And here, also, he's a bad guy. So I went in expecting that. And then they beat the Elementals, and they... Again, Jake Gyllenhaal is a really good casting choice because he was, like, very charismatic and seemed very caring to Peter, and so it's like, okay, well, maybe he's not the bad guy, and then they're setting up something else here, but then they beat the last, the fire elemental, and I look at my phone, and I'm like, it's only been an hour, there's there's another whole half to this movie, but it was weird because the first <laughs> the first half of the movie really did have a second and third act. And then the second half of the movie had another second and third act. So it was like first act, second act, third act, second act, third act, which was like a very weird. It was a very. It was kind of a roller coaster a little bit, and to be fair, an expected one a little bit with the turn of Mysterio. But it was a lot. A lot happened in that last hour, I guess, or in the last hour and fifteen minutes or so. That's hilarious to me because literally, as soon as the fire elemental is defeated, I checked my phone and I was like, "How much movie is left?" I'm like a whole hour. Yeah. Like, this is, yeah. He's definitely the bad guy. Like, of course, when we first saw the trailer, we we were like, oh, we'd be really surprised if he wasn't the bad guy. Um, yeah. And then, and again, that's that's credit to Jake Gyllenhaal and to the writers, to be fair, mm-hmm. for making him seem like maybe, because I everybody had to, or most everybody had to go in with that expectation, right? Of like, oh yeah, he's absolutely the bad guy. And I mean, it was always, I'm sure, in the back of everyone's minds. 
but at the forefront in different scenes where again he has this nice world building moment and these touching moments with peter there's definitely moments where you're thinking to yourself like oh well maybe he's really not Mm-hmm. yeah he he played that pretty pretty dang well and you know there's that one moment where you know peter first met him and he called him mysterio and he's like what's that and then the second time he met him he didn't call him mysterio and jake jonah said my name's mysterio like he made a yeah. really good subtle change to give you a hint that you know he's probably the bad guy but like he's just such a personal actor that um you know i marvel has made some alliance changes for instance the scrolls were traditionally one of the most vile villains and now they're good guys so you know you, you couldn't have been too sure um and then just that yeah, well, that reveal with Jake Gyllenhaal where, you know, Peter just gave him Edith. And then it was such an eccentric scene. Like, and that's where you see is how weird of a guy he is and how it really works for him. But when he was giving out those toasts and he's like, and that's it, folks. Like, it was just such a, that was a fun scene to me, I felt like. Um, it was, and it was an interesting maybe in small part it was kind of an homage I think because in a lot of the comics um, Quentin Beck was a failed uh, special effects artist generally like he worked somewhere in Hollywood is usually what it was so again it was very uh, you know big and prim and proper kind of like again very Hollywood of like and you did this and you did this and thanks to the Academy kind of thing like almost an award show mm-hmm. sort of thing so that that was kind of a cool if subtle homage to where Quentin Beck generally comes from in the comics. Yeah, exactly. Um, and speaking of that, I wanted to talk about a couple other things on um, about Mysterio. I was, for one thing, I was kind of surprised that they kept the helmet. I don't know about you, but like the weird uh, magic eight ball kind of fluid looking <laughs> helmet thing that, um, cause it, to me, it's like, okay, if they want to make that change, I don't think anybody's going to get that upset. Like it's very iconic. Sure. But you know, like it's a Marvel cinematic universe and they can sort of do whatever they want so they can change the helmet. And then uh, some, some executive was like, nope, got to keep the helmet, keep it on him. It's going to be weird. It's going to probably look goofy kind of throughout the movie. And he's barely going to wear it when he's not fighting. And sometimes even when he is fighting, because it's going to be maybe a little expensive and it's going to look goofy and everyone's going to kind of laugh and take him out of the experience, but we have to have it. <laughs> like, I don't know. It was I don't know if you thought it was weird, but I definitely um, thought that it it was kind of strange. But uh, also, as as an aside, the um, backstory that they made up for him, the multiverse thing that you know Peter gets really excited about, was kind of cool because it feeds into you know the idea brought up in Endgame. And then additionally, because he refers to where he's from, which is Earth eight three three, which in the comics is there is the whole multiverse thing, and on earth 833 in the comics it does exist and it's home to spider uk which is the spider-man in the uk where the climax of this movie happens you know on the london bridge so again really cool subtle homages to like the comics and all of the different things that they were piecing together there yeah for sure um and, and as far as like the multiverse goes i'm almost glad that that wasn't what it was because i thought you know maybe they redesigned him and he actually has these powers was 
one of the many theories I had during the movie. Uh, yeah, me too. And I ended up being pretty happy because that could have gotten very messy very quickly. And it's already hard enough to keep everything in the MCU contained. So if they had had him from a you know a different world or um, you know brought in the multiverse, it just I feel like it would have been a risky play, at least right now for the MCU. Uh, it, yeah, it's hard absolutely. enough keeping space, and then they're gonna you know bring in the Eternals or whatever. So um, you know it was it was a fun reverse twist um you know i wasn't necessarily surprised by anything they did with mysterio but because mm -hmm. they set it up to where it could have been you know one of three likely outcomes it wasn't like a it still felt a little bit surprising because uh, there were so many different elements was he a bad guy good guy probably going to be bad no surprise there does he actually have the powers is he still this you know studio um uh is he a fake essentially um yeah as far as you know when he was fighting mysterio i thought the spider sense it just i didn't like how they handled that in this movie really in the whole mcu as a whole i agree they it was again i i texted you afterwards and i not the, i said the whole movie was very deus ex machina and i don't think that that's not not like the film Ex Machina or the game Ex Machina, <laughs> by the way. Um, like the actual idea. Um, and the whole movie wasn't, but that scene definitely was. Because again, like, like we talked about, they didn't really ever bring up Spider-Sense in the MCU except for a few subtle allusions to it. And all of a sudden, that's kind of how he just wins that last battle, you know? Yeah, and... You know, I felt like if his spider sense was having trouble, like, they could have made this, you know, smart line where he was having trouble because he blipped back into existence, so maybe his powers were a little bit funky, and he needs to find them again. Or Dude, there's a million ways that they could have explained it. I felt like that's a good one. He's, again, literally a teenager where it's like, it's, in a weird way, you could be like, oh yeah, his hormones are messing it up, you know, he's probably like literally going through the latter stages of puberty and a million other things and the fact that he's confused about or having a hard time with his relationship with MJ the fact that May and Happy are dating like there's a lot of stuff going on in his life that could a lot of external factors I guess that could be messing with it and instead it's just messed up for some reason and who knows and it's uh, the little the, your, your tingle's gone Peter what's going on there yeah, oh, this banana introduces this major problem with <laughs> no explanation. The, not only introduces uh, this major problem, but it also introduces this major aspect to a character that we've never talked about, but also this aspect isn't working, just so you know. It's like, one of the major powers that this character has just isn't working, and we're going to throw it in almost as a joke initially. That felt, again, bizarre and just very out of place. Yeah, because you... I mean, outside of the hair, arm hair scene in Infinity War and uh, a car dodging scene in Civil War, there wasn't this huge reference to it. And it's a big part of who he is. And I think they realized, okay, now we actually really need to touch on his Spidey sense. Um, but then 
I, do, I feel like he didn't have to earn it. Like in Homecoming, he had that really great scene where he had to earn the suit. He had to realize that he was the hero, and he had that scene where he's like, I'm Spider-Man, and he pushes the thing off of him. Uh, but here he's yeah. just like, okay, work. And then it does. And that was silly. I, I did like how after it started working, there was that moment where everything was silent. And Yeah, that was cool. Like I thought that was well done. It just it was really frustrating to me how they handled it. I mean, you could have added five minutes and a couple lines of dialogue, and the Spidey sense could have been a really good subplot. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so I know that we both took issue with this. Let's talk about some of the illusions. Not illusions, but illusions with an I. <laughs> that... Uh, <laughs> that Mysterio created because I know that that was and the the illusions in the drones like let's kind of wrap that all into one because I know that that was an issue that both you and I kind of had with this movie yeah so first I'll just say you know as far as CGI goes the drones themselves were okay but those were probably practical effects but when any cut to space just looked really cartoony and I, uh, funny enough that isn't even what I was thinking of when I said cartoony but continue <laughs> So that, that was one of them. I thought the satellite just looked awful. Um, and then also when the drone was flying to space that first time, uh, when he almost mm. killed Brad, I thought that looked pretty bad too. Um, that, that, that fire exhaust coming out. You know, that was not the best looking thing. A couple of other CGI things. The fire monster was hit or miss. The water looked good. I'll, I'll say that. And yeah. the line of the movie for me was, what's happening? I don't know, but he's kicking that water's ass. I, yeah, that was good. I busted up laughing at that. But I, I just wasn't convinced that the drones could have the power to do that. what they were doing. Because when he went into the illusion at the final, the Avengers level threat illusion, and he's on the inside, it was just these drones that were making this projection, but I couldn't tell which drones were making the destruction, and, you know, could they spit lava, form molten stuff, or, like, spit water? I, I just, I wasn't convinced that the drones had the power that they did, based on what they were saying. Like, it, it felt, it, it was hard to justify to me. Yeah, it, it felt convenient that it seemed like the drones could just do whatever and the explanation was oh they're drones and they're Tony's drones they're Stark Industry drones so they can do whatever we need them to do and they're incredibly you know they're smart drones and we can don't worry we'll figure it out later and they're just amazing and incredible one of those things in particular that's it's a very minor subtle thing but on the London Bridge they pick up one or two different cars like I think they pick up the bus and then another car and I I mean granted there's a number of drones and I, I will, I'm sure, get reamed for this later about a million ways that they could have done it, but it, it just seemed very odd to me because the only way that we had seen destruction been created before by the drones was just through, like, again, a little bit of flares and some gunshots and whatnot in the scene where they're chore uh, basically choreographing the, the Avengers-level threat or parts of it. it. It was hard to understand what they could do, lift the car. Uh, you know, they, they showed the underwater sh scene where they... They created this pulse that caused some of the bridge to break, and and you know that was that was all fine. Um, so they tried to explain it, but it just 
I don't want to drone on. Um, <laughs> uh, and also the so I thought the very first hallucination scene where he was on the construction site, I thought that was brilliant. Like, I the way like the, the fake Nick Fury shot. Like, I'm pretty sure that's a hallucination, but it just felt like Peter could have been deceived by all of this. Uh, yeah, I, I I agree with a lot of that. Um, I mean, th- see, that was the part. I don't know what you want to call it, the illusion realm or whatever. Um, some of that was what I was thinking of when I said some of it felt cartoony, which is, again, yeah, fine. It, it um, it, it it was a weird dichotomy because like it was, it was still cool looking. It felt very like, I guess, post '90s Spider-Man kind of, um, in the sort of very cartoony way, um. And it was cool, but again, the illusions, some were good, some were bad. It was kind of hit or miss, and by the end of the movie, it felt very, and I get that it was Mysterio's whole thing, but it felt very played out to me, like they just kept using it over and over and over, like the, I I guess really what it came down to is, like you said, the first construction site scene was very good, where it made it seem like, oh yeah, the illusion's over, and then they just kept using that over and over and over, and it, it, it got old at some point. Yeah, and I think it came back for that very last moment where the spider sense really came in and he had the gun on him and yep. like Peter caught his hand. Like I thought that one was a, a good use of it where it wasn't this over-the-top thing. It was just really low-key deception. Um, yeah. So I thought that's where it returned to normalcy. But it was, yeah, it was just hard for me to be like, okay, so the drones can make him spin around like uh, especially i think it was the first time where it was like the ground was shifting beneath him and it was moving sideways like that was pretty cartoony and i was like is that what the drones can do like i i don't know but but they had to make it a little bit more practical than this special effects guy um with 3d they had to make the projections have impact and that's kind of hard to write so you know, I try to enjoy those scenes, try to take, uh, suspend my disbelief a little bit. Um, yeah, But at for sure. some points, it got a l- my disbelief was a little high up. Hmm. Yeah, all right, we're running a little bit long, so let's bust through a couple things really quick. Uh, there's a lot of them, I'm sure, but I just wanted to talk about two other Easter eggs really fast. So if you, you might not have caught it because it was very, very quick. As Peter was packing his suitcase, I don't know if you noticed, the initials on his suitcase were BFP, which is actually for Ben Parker, um, whose death we actually thankfully skirted in Homecoming, because we've all seen that, we've seen that play out about a million times on screen already, but it was a cool, again, way to discuss and be like, oh yeah, he still, he misses Uncle Ben, and um, he still existed in this universe, but we're just ignoring, or we're not talking about what happened there, because we don't need to here, um... And in, I think it was in the construction scene illusion, it's hard to remember because there were so many, uh, there was the bit with Iron Man kind of rising out of that grave and appearing dead with the spiders crawling all over him. That was, I think, an homage to um, the Marvel Zombies line of comics, which was created by Robert Kirkman, who is the writer for the Walking Dead comics. So that was really cool to, to, to see on screen because, again, having the depth um, of comics and lore for Marvel to draw, and it's cool to see how much they are able to subtly work into these movies. Yeah, and you could tell they like the comics, because even, I mean, Endgame, all these other movies, you see references to obscure issues or really fun storylines, like the Cap v. Cap scene in Endgame. Yeah. Um, 
and, and so you, you just tell that they, they do care about the source material, even if they make their own, um, take their own directions, which I'm fine with. I don't want to see what I've read before. Yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. All right. But let's get into what, again, really, <laughs> I think, is moving the cinematic universe forward, which are the end credit scenes. So that mid credit scene was amazing. Uh, that was like the best part of the movie, I think, right? Where it was really cool to see Spider-Man actually like swinging through Manhattan. That felt very Spider-Man to me. That was exactly what I was thinking of when I was saying like it would have been cool to see in 3D like where he's actually swinging through downtown New York. That like him coming out of the screen at you or the web slinging out of the screen at you. That would have been really really cool to see and experience in 3D, especially with him like taking photos of himself as he's flying, which is again a uh, talking about like in a lot of the comics where he's a photographer taking pictures of spider-man and then of course jk simmons is back apparently as j jonah jameson which spider else i know who else could you get to play j jonah jameson besides jk simmons that was amazing that was great although it <laughs> they made the daily bugle feel a little bit like breibart sort of <laughs> like very crazy um but it's it's gonna be interesting because i i want to see what the dynamic between him and jameson is now because there's been a lot of them in the comics but again the ones that we're typically used to are is again the sam raimi ones where parker works for him and is bringing him picture yeah, he wants pictures of spider-man, Spider-Man. So he's bringing <laughs> yeah exactly um so i'm i'm interested to see what the dynamic between them um becomes and again this is what felt like one of the few things in the entire movie that set up for future films, which is his identity being exposed and Mysterio and his team, I guess, doctoring the footage to make it look like Peter uh, killed him in like cold blood and was trying to destroy all of these things, which was cool and clever um, because of the one line that Mysterio said right before he died in air quotes, because we never necessarily confirmed that he died, which I'll get to maybe in a few minutes. Um, but where he says people will believe what they see and mm-hmm. you'll see that. And it was, it was, it was really cool to see that sort of come to fruition. And it, it, this, I also thought that it was an interesting contrast where Peter's identity was revealed. Um, it was an interesting contrast to when Tony reveals like, Oh yeah, no, I am Iron Man. As he's even, as he's having this big press conference and he's like, you know what? I want to live in this limelight. And Peter didn't really, which was interesting because, again, the note that came with the glasses that had Edith on them said, for the next Iron Man. So, again, an interesting and different dichotomy there. And I think that was a moment, at least to me as a viewer, realizing, like, oh, yeah, Peter isn't the next Iron Man. And he doesn't want to be the next Iron Man. He just r- literally does want to be your friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. I just love J.K. Simmons. Uh, I think he's the definition of high blood pressure. I thought that... You know, it will be interesting to see where they go with this. I hope it's not written off uh, like it that Aunt May thing was, but this one's a lot harder to write off because yeah, you know, there's no way. Yeah, frame for murder. Like I, I, and that shows the impact I think and the growth really, just how they handled everything with uh, the end of Mysterio. Because in Homecoming, he did everything he could to save Vulture. Uh, and and kept yeah. him alive, and and here he just like kind of let him bleed out. You know he, so he's still that high school kid, but it it was more gritty in that element where he didn't even try to save him really. He just, you know, he's he's changed, um, and now he's gonna have to deal with this public defamation, and so it 
will be really cool to see. I, I don't want to wait two or three years or however long it's going to be for the next Spider-Man, but I unfortunately have to. Yeah, and an interesting point that I read that I didn't immediately think about is that, to be fair, we don't know that Mysterio is necessarily dead, and this could be a setup for uh, a um, Sinister Six movie, because Peter doesn't ask whether or not he's dead to Edith, or maybe he does, I don't remember specifically what he says, but the way that Edith responds, she just says, there are no illusions in effect. She doesn't say that he's not breathing, she doesn't say that his vital signs have stopped, anything like that, so Peter just kind of assumes that he's dead but we don't know that we never get that confirmed anywhere and maybe this is the game of thrones viewer in me thinking like (laughs) oh unless you hear unless you see hear and hear again that someone is dead it doesn't mean that they're dead so i don't know i'm interested to see if he actually does come back that is a good point you bring up and and marvel even if they're dead are they really dead you never know um yes let's let's talk about wolverine for one second or for one (laughs) cellular second (laughs) But at the end credits of Homecoming, they, they show Vulture uh, talking to, I, I don't remember who, uh, but it really could be an interesting setup for some kind of Sinister Six. Um, you know, maybe they'll take their own yeah, liberties the, with who's in yeah, that the guy group. That, the, the guy that supposedly is probably going to become Scorpion, and yeah, yeah, yeah. It'll be, it'll be interesting to see if that's what they're setting up for maybe another Spider-Man movie, potentially. I don't know. We'll, we'll have to... We'll have to be on the lookout for that. Um, but all right, let's talk about this. The very end of the credits scene where we find out that Nick Fury and Maria Hill weren't Nick Fury and Maria Hill literally the whole movie. They were scrolls, which actually, to be fair, may, didn't make me feel better. But the whole movie, I kept sitting there thinking, like, some of the things that Fury's doing, I mean, like, he's a bit he's a bit of a gruff guy, but this this feels a little out of character, and I can't quite figure out why. And then finding out it wasn't actually him, like, I, I don't know if if I'm chalking up what could have been not great writing to an easy excuse. But again, I don't know if you felt like he was a weird... He, he was just different to the other movies, but it I couldn't even explain to you necessarily what it was, but some of the ways he was interacting with Peter and Happy and some of the other people, I was like, this doesn't feel quite right. And then I was like, oh, because it's not him that makes sense and it's funny learning that you can watch the whole movie through a different lens because at the very beginning when fake fury and fake hill are in uh, mexico uh fake hill says this isn't our mission why are we here because their mission was literally just poses us to get the glasses to peter but they're like ah you know or fake fury's like you know we should still investigate this and and figure it out so it was kind of a it was kind of interesting, and I, I really want to go back, actually having seen that scene now, and see how much of the movie changes and how much of that dialogue has like a secondary meaning, finding out that that wasn't Fury and Hill. I literally breathed a sigh of relief after the initial shock of him being a scroll because it made so much sense. He was just a major jerkbag throughout the entire yeah. film, and I just thought it was, it was a little hard to digest. I was like, come on, Nick. Like, he's a you've not been this hard before and it just made so much sense i actually did rewatch it and and you just see the little nuances i think it was intentional to have him be a little bit different um i think so yeah because it just you see like little character behavior here and there of course you need to play the show a little bit but it even made sense why he fell for beck's deception in the first place because i was like i mean nick fury would he really fall for this like i don't know and 
to have that be, oh yeah, it's because he was the scroll. Um, I want to know for how long he's been the scroll. Um, yeah. If it's just this movie and why, and and I'm sure it'll touch on that. Uh, but I thought that was a nice little, um, I mean, they were just brought up in, uh, I think it was March is when Captain Marvel was released. Uh, but to show that they will be stays in the universe, so it will be really interesting to see how they play a role, uh, and, and I'm sure it will be more than just a cameo. Yeah, I, I'm I'm interested too because I know in uh, I think it's Secret Wars is where the and and like you said, the scrolls who have typically been, you know, big bad guys in Secret Wars in the comics, that's like them invading and pretending to be people and heroes and all of these things and so it, it's going to be interesting to see how much of a mainstay they become and if a secret wars plot kind of takes place although it doesn't seem likely at this point but but who knows like i said we're in a whole new phase now so uh we'll have to see what happens but we've run pretty long jacob so do you have any final closing thoughts about far from home or anything we talked about this week yeah i'm gonna end it with a palate cleanser because that's what this movie was. I thought I just loved uh, Zendaya and Tom Holland. I, I rooted for them through all the awkwardness. I do wish they did <laughs> more with Ned. I I think he was a great character in Homecoming, but he still had his funny moments in in this movie too. Um, a very packed movie, so it, they didn't have a lot of room for him to be there. Plus, of course, having Nick Fury's team involved would have been hard. Uh, but still one of my favorite characters uh, night monkey scene uh, his girlfriend screaming night monkey just a lot of funny jokes uh, it was it was a good high school it was more of a high school rom-com to me than a than a spider-man movie but yeah yeah I'd agree with that I mean and again like to be clear to everybody we we definitely put it through a ringer here but just because we were giving it a hard time definitely does not mean that we didn't enjoy it and don't think that it's a a good film we just again we are going to be critical of it there was a lot to be critical of but again i i really enjoyed myself watching it and it sounds like you definitely did as well enough to see it a second time at least so and who knows i might see it a third because it was really (laughs) a fun movie it doesn't overstay its welcome it's a pretty decent length so um, yeah, you know, overall, no, and definitely, I mean, if nothing else, the cast, that cast just really brings it together and, and makes multiple viewings more than possible for sure. Yeah, definitely would recommend this film, even if you're a casual fan of the MCU, if you kind of like Spider-Man or you just want something fun, um, you know, we were hard on it, but I think it's just because, um, you know, I, I'm, I tend to be care. harder on good movies. Yeah, I care. Um especially about Marvel films, so I tend to be a little bit more, I don't want to say nitpicky, but yeah, 7.5, I almost gave it an 8, but just a couple of things with the plot brought it down, but that's because uh, critics are jerks. Yep, that's true. All right, Jacob, if people want to find you online and explain to you just why you were so wrong about all of these things or how the drones could have done those things, where can they reach you? You can reach me at my Twitter handle at Jacob J. Coots, the letter J, C O U T T S. I love to hear your thoughts. You can send me a DM, uh, if you shoot me a follow if you want. Uh, I will be 
responsive and very curious to hear what you thought about my thoughts. And you can reach me on Twitter at PWG Grant. That is P-W-G-G-R-A-N-T. If you would also like to send something, an email, response, thoughts, whatever, to the podcast, you can email us at 35millimeterpod, that is 35mmpod at gmail.com. If you thought we didn't go over something for Metacritic or if you had any questions about that segment in particular, the industry talk sections we know can be a little bit dense and we're trying to keep them relatively short. Um, so if you have any questions about any of that, please email us in an upcoming uh, industry talk segment. We're going to go over a lot of those questions and answer them. So we'd love to hear from you. Thank you guys so much. We will see you all next week. 35mm Perspective is a Players with Game production. All opinions within the podcast are our own. Michael Campos is our composer. All rights reserved.